Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to look at the subject of adoption. We're going to do it very briefly. We are the children of God, says Paul here, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. We are the children of God, but we're not all the children of God, are we? That's not an automatic thing. There are people who will say that we are all children of God, and to some extent that's true. After all, he created us, and because he created us, we're made in his image, and they will argue then, doesn't that make us all God's children? We're all the children of Adam. We have one common father. In that sense, we say, God is our father because we owe our very life to him, our present king. King Charles III is on record, he's a long time on record, is saying that he doesn't want to be the defender of the faith, as previous monarchs have been. He wants to be a defender of faith, some kind of vague concept that covers a a multitude of so-called paths to God. I didn't listen to his, his Christmas speech, did you? No. I did look it up recently to see what he had actually said. And he came across very strongly as believing in what he calls the brotherhood of man. Here's his exact words, for those of you who didn't listen. Some years ago, I was able to fulfill a long, a lifelong wish to visit Bethlehem at the Church of the Nativity. There I went down into the chapel of the manger and stood in silent reverence by the silver star that is inlaid on the floor and marks the birthplace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's doubtful, but here. It meant more to me than I can possibly express to stand on that spot where, as the Bible tells us, the light that has come into the world was born. That's nice, isn't it? So far, so good. Then he went on. While Christmas is, of course, a Christian celebration, the power of light overcoming darkness is celebrated across the boundaries of faith and belief. So whatever faith you have, or whether you have none, it is in this life-giving light Now, where does that light come from, according to Charles? Well, from whatever faith you have. It is in this life-giving light, I go on, and with true humility that lies in our service to others, that I believe we can find hope for the future. So hope for the future comes from anywhere you want it to come from. Let us therefore celebrate it together and cherish it always. Our churches and synagogues, mosques, temples, and good waters have once again united in feeding the hungry, providing love and support throughout the year. The brotherhood, here he says it, the brotherhood of man, the light that comes from all faiths. Charles III, defender of vague faiths. 
That may be Charles's view. But that's not Christianity. Jesus said that he is the light of the world. And Jesus said that you could only come unto the Father through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now there's no doubt that throughout the scriptures we're taught the very opposite of what Charles believes. We're taught that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are God's people and there are those who are not. There are those who are saved by God's grace, who have known that amazing grace that we were singing about a moment ago. And there are those who have never known that grace. The division is very clear. Jesus himself speaks about sheep and goats on judgment day. He talks about those who enter in at the narrow gate and those who do not. Those who are on the broad road that leads to eternity and those who are on the narrow road that leads to life. In this very passage, we are told that there are people who have been specifically chosen by God to be his children. Paul says in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So what makes you one of God's children? Is it going to a Christian church? No. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church makes you a person who goes to church. Nothing more. Is it people who are religious, non-religious? Well, when Jesus was approached by deeply religious people, Pharisees, people who were steeped in their religious traditions, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, they came to him and they said, We are the children of Abraham. We are the children. And Jesus said, You're not the children of Abraham. You're the children of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So let's be clear right away. We're not all God's children in the sense that we are part of his family. If we want to become children of God, then we have to be taken from the family of the devil and placed into the family of God. The sinner, that's you and me, transplanted from under a despotic jackboot, from under a tyrannous regime, to be placed into a loving family with a new Father who will love us and care for us. Now how does that happen? What does it mean? Let's go back to what Paul's saying to these Ephesian Christians. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, here it is, by Jesus Christ. There's only one way you can be a child of God, and that's to come by Jesus Christ. You can't come any other way. You can't be a child of God by being a religious person, a Roman Catholic, an Ulster Protestant. Going to the most Protestant church in the country doesn't make you a child of God. 
but makes you a child of God as a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Something important about this. Because we learned in our last study in the lecture and throughout the first three chapters of this book that we are entirely passive. It is God who is doing the work. It is God who is active. The Father adopts us by the work of the Spirit and he adopts us not just as children but as children with very special rights. When you look at the word here, adoption, the adoption of children, in verse 5, is one single Greek word. It's a verb, adoption of children, and it's derived from the Greek noun huios, which literally means son. Now, children is not by any means a mistranslation here, but the idea is that when God adopts us into his family, he changes our legal status to that of a son. And he does it even if you're a woman. James White translates this like this. He did this by predestinating us to adoption as his legal heirs. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Through Jesus Christ. That's about as close to the meaning of the text as we can get. We see it again in that passage in Galatians chapter 4 that we read together. In Galatians chapter 4, it tells us, right at the very end of the passage in verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's what that means. John puts it like this, John 3, 1 John 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. When you're brought into God's family, you're not just a servant in the household. You're not even just a second-rate person. You're a son. It matters. It matters because of the status of sonship in ancient societies. In the time when Paul was writing, Roman citizens could adopt a boy. They wanted a son and an heir. So a man who had a family and had no son and heir could adopt a son and heir from another family. And if he did that, that son would lose the right of inheritance in his old family and he would never regain that right. And instead he would be granted the right of inheritance in his new family. He was to all intents and purposes the son of his new family. Back in that passage in Galatians chapter 4, Paul goes into this in a different way. And he explains it, that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. He's just a kid. And he gets taught by tutors in a fancy Roman home. And he sits in the villa in the sun, and his his tutor, his governor, comes in and teaches him. And he has to call the governor sir, and do what he's told. And believe you me, if he didn't do what he's told, the tutor would cane him. I remember that well myself. But then one day, he would come of age, and everything would change. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 2, he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of his father. 
And when that time comes, verse 7, you're no more a servant, but you're a son. Everything changes in the household. As soon as you're declared a son, the servants stop caning you. And they start calling you master. And the reason for that is that your status has changed. You are a son of the father. You are an heir. And Paul applies that. He says, you are no more a servant if you are the son of God. If you've been brought into God's family, you've been given this special status. You're a son. And if you are a son, you are an heir of God. Now think about that for a moment. That's what God has done for us. For those who are his. For those who are his redeemed people. They have been transferred by virtue of their redemption. Christ paying the price for them. At the cross. Removing them from under the authority of Satan. Placing them legally under the headship and parenthood of God. Who will rule over them and govern them for the rest of their lives. And give them all the rights of inheritance. That belong to sons. John 1 and verse 12. As many as received him. He gave them the right to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe in his name. Which are born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of human decision. Nor of the will of man. But of God. And that adoption is brought about by faith. There's one more wee thing we have to learn about that. There's a difference between the sonship of Christ and the sonship of the believer. We're sons of God and we have been adopted into God's family and given status as heirs of the king. But we're not to think of ourselves as being Sons of God in the sense that Jesus is, for he is God's natural son, isn't he? And we are different. We're adopted sons. We're brought into God's family through the process of adoption. Whereas Jesus is God's only begotten son, eternally begotten of the Father, of the same substance as the Father, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And that makes him and marks him out as different from us. We are adopted into to God's family practically that should make us wary when we hear some of these prosperity teachers on the television you know these people that you find in the high up channels and freeview and they're in some studio in America They're telling you that God makes you rich. And if you send them a seed offering of faith, send me $500 and you'll have your miracle. Have you heard of those people? I'm sure you have. They believe that Christians are little gods who have the power of creation in your words. And you can speak forth reality into existence. And all this nonsense that you hear on those television programs, it's all from the devil it's a lie straight from the very pit itself it's exactly what the devil said to Eve in the garden 
in Genesis 3 and 5, where he says, For God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes should be opened, and ye shall be as gods. And that's exactly what these television evangelists are saying. You have the power of creation. You can become a little god. Don't listen to a word of them, and whatever you do, don't send them your money. We're chosen by God to be his children. Children that are brought into his family by the Lord Jesus Christ alone, not by any other way. Children that are brought into his family and given the rights of sons as heirs of his kingdom. And we're privileged children according to the good pleasure of his will. It is his will to bounteously bless us. He created us to have fellowship with him. Remember the very first question and answer in the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're created. Fellowship with God gives God pleasure. It is God's good pleasure. He wants us to have fellowship with him. He wants us to be part of his family. He wants us to be sons and heirs. And yet the fall of man destroyed that. We fell into sin. And yet in Christ, fellowship with God is restored. We're brought into God's family where he can have fellowship with us. And that would be great. That would be good enough for me. But yet God gives us so much more. Adam and Eve had communion with God. They walked with God in the quietness and the still of the garden in the evening. But Adam and Eve never had Christ. We have Jesus, our Saviour. Adam and Eve never had security. Adam fell from grace, didn't he? Adam sinned and he fell away and he was banished from the garden and banished from God's presence and he never got to return. But for the soul who is trusted in Christ, there is clear biblical teaching that we are his and we are held in his hand and we can never be cast away. He keeps us until we are safely home. In God's family we have Christ and we have security and we have forgiveness, an ongoing covenant of forgiveness. For in Christ we have the one who continually intercedes for us. We are God's adoptive sons and we have everything back that Adam destroyed and we have so much more. Is it any wonder that when Paul thinks about these things, he goes on in verse 6 and he cries out to the praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That wonderful, undeserved favor the Lord has bestowed upon us.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.